Romans chapter 10. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We are studying this book, and we've been in it for a few years, and we'll remain in it for a few more, but I want to tell you, it has been uh, a life-changing experience for me, personally, and understanding my own salvation, and understanding the church better, and understanding my relationships with other believers better, and it just keeps crescendoing. I think the best is even yet to come. Uh, this morning we're going to cover about eight or nine verses and it's not like we've been doing in the past but it's all a part of a unit. Sometimes you can stop at a phrase or a word and really drill down and that's important to do and sometimes it's important to get the connective tissue of a passage and to see the whole thing as it's woven together by the Spirit of God. We're going to pick it up at verse 4 and we're going to study all the way down through verse 13, specifically with verse 5, but let's start at verse 4 just to set it in our minds. Romans chapter 10 verse 4. For Christ is the goal or the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices righteousness will, which is based on law, that man will live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart a person believes. Resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth... He confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed or put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord, will be saved. According to some estimates, there are roughly 4,200 religions in the world. Just wrap your mind around that. 4,200 religions. However, most websites or religion classes in universities would would summarize that by saying there are basically three, excuse me, five major ones. Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. One of the main tenets of each of these religions is what happens after you die? What happens in this life that allows us to get to heaven? How can a person go to heaven? All of these religions have some kind of trajectory set for landing in heaven after you die. Let's look at them very briefly. Buddhism. It believes that heaven or what do the Buddhists call heaven? Nirvana. Is to be rejoined in spirit with God. Reaching nirvana. A transcendental blissful state. 
requires following the eightfold path. It includes understanding the universe and acting and speaking and living in a right manner with the right intentions. And it means mastering these and other of the eight paths. And that will return your spirit to God if you do them well enough. Hinduism is similar to Buddhism. In some ways, it's almost the same. Salvation is called moksha. It's reached when the worshiper is freed from the cycle of reincarnation that we're all trapped in. Your spirit becomes one with God after that. And you become free by ridding yourself of bad karma in this life. And the effect of evil or evil intent is shed the more mature you get and the more lives you live. This can be done in three ways. Selfless devotion and service to a particular God. Doesn't matter which one, just one that you, you really believe in. Uh, selfless understanding of the nature and the universe. The nature of the universe. I guess you have to be a scientist at some level. Or by mastering the actions needed to fully please the gods themselves. There's Judaism. The Jews believe that as individuals and as a nation, they can be reconciled to God. The, through sin, individually and collectively, they lost their salvation. And now they earn it back through repentance, good deeds, and a life of devotion. Remember a few weeks ago, we said they've even invented some uh, rules that they can um, obey, including how you clip your finger and toenails in what order. God's somehow impressed by that. Then one we've been hearing a lot about, Islam. Islam is a takeoff on the uh, Christian Judeo God. They go back to Abraham and trace their lineage back there as well. And Muslims believe that salvation comes to those who obey Allah sufficiently enough that the good deeds will outweigh the bad in the end judgment. It's just a simple seesaw fulcrum. If the good deeds are heavier than the bad deeds, then you're in. You can also add fasting and prayers and go on pilgrimage and perform good works that help you tip the scale. But there is one way to guarantee your salvation. And that is to be martyred in the name or service to Allah. And that will send you to a paradise of pleasures that await. And then there's Christianity. And I wish it were just, just as simple as saying this is what people believe about Christianity, but it's not that simple. Unfortunately, there are right and wrong understandings of what biblical Christianity is. There are right or wrong understandings about what gets a person to heaven. 2 Corinthians 11, 4 says, Paul speaking to the Corinthians, If one comes and preaches another Jesus, which we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit than you have not received, that you have not received, or, or a different gospel that you have not accepted... In other words, there's a right gospel, a right Jesus, a right spirit that you can receive biblically defined. But there are wrong and substitute and false ideas of the real. There were right and wrong, true and false, biblical and unbiblical ways in Paul's day just as there is in ours of understanding the Christian faith. So when we look at Christianity, we have to ask, are we seeing Christianity as a cultural construct that people have invented or are we looking at Christianity as the Bible defines the faith? If you put all that in a kind of a spiritual assessment blender and see what comes out, I want to suggest there are really only only two religions. Only two. The religion of human achievement 
and the religion of divine accomplishment. That's exactly what this passage addresses. The religion of trying to do enough so that you please God enough so that God accepts you into heaven is all based on what we do, can do, how hard we work. And there's also the religion of what God has done already to make salvation available and accessible and how he provides and offers that to someone who will believe and accept it by faith. So you either get to heaven by your own works or by what God has done. That's exactly what this passage addresses specifically from the perspective of looking at the Jews and the errors that they had made from the Older Testament into the New Testament era. So what I want us to do for this morning is break this passage down and look at two critical considerations for gaining eternal salvation. There is no more important question than that which we are going to answer today. Two critical considerations for gaining eternal salvation. I, I want to say something that's, that's a little bit, it feels odd to say because I'm saying it. What I'm about to tell you is the most important thing you've ever heard in your life. It's pretty, pretty audacious, isn't it? It's not my own ideas. What Paul is going to teach us without question, is the most important thing you've ever heard in your whole life. That's a big statement, is it? Why? Because what you do with what Paul says here determines heaven or hell for you. It determines your eternity. When we look at eternity, our life is going to be a minuscule dot we can hardly recognize. Your entire eternity is dependent upon what you're doing and what you will do with what this passage teaches and says. Let's jump in. Two critical considerations for gaining eternal salvation. He says, this is how you have to think about this. Number one is this. The only two options for seeking salvation. We have to figure out, what are the options? And as I said, there are really only two, right? Human achievement and divine accomplishment. And that's exactly how Paul breaks down his introduction to this idea, that uh, this, this great eternal idea, godly idea of how man can be saved. First, let's look at the impossibility of salvation through effort. That's human achievement. The impossibility of salvation through human effort. Christ is the goal of the law in verse 4. The law was intended to show us Christ, not give us a set of rules that we could follow so God would be impressed. After stating that in verse 4, now he goes to verse 5 and says, For Moses, the great author of the Pentateuch, the law itself, those first five books of the Bible, for Moses writes that... The man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. This word righteousness is a workhorse term for Paul in the book of, of Romans. It means perfection. It means to be justified. It means to be holy. It means to be righteous. It means that, that quality that you have and need to be accepted by God. Righteousness. And Moses spoke of righteousness too. He said, if you practice righteousness which is based on the law... You shall live by that righteousness. That sounds so positive. He means it to be exactly negative. In this paragraph, Paul's going to talk about two kinds of righteousness. God's righteousness and a righteousness that we try to achieve with our own effort. This first righteousness is here. It's that which is based on keeping the law. Now, in order to uh, make his point, he's a good expositor. He goes back and uses the scripture himself. Leviticus 18.5. He says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, says the Lord, by which a man may live if he does them. 
It's a conditional clause. If you could obey the law perfectly, you will live now in the fullness of this life and in eternity because of the perfection that you've now stored up and gained in your own life. He says the same thing. He quotes the same passage, Leviticus 18, in chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 12. The law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. In other words, here's what he's saying. If a person is able to perform and obey all that the law requires and and mandates, it will lead to life. But there's a problem. And it's a big one. No one is able to live up to the requirements of the law. No one's perfect. No one can obey all of them. There's 630 plus in the Older Testament. Well, how are you doing on all those? No one can do that. So the Jews, actually in, in Jesus' day and even into our own, what they do in the synagogues is they create laws that are external and in addition to the Old Testament, ones that they can keep, which makes them feel like they get traction with, with God. And maybe that's what, the, what Judaism does. But you and I do the same thing. God may be impressed if I do this, if I don't do that, if I say this, if I don't say that, if I serve here, if I do this for this person. He can be honored by those things, but he's not honored enough to say, now you made it. You made the cut. Now it's time to come to heaven. The law is not bad. It points us in the direction of obedience. But it does not impart any power to accomplish its demands. God did not give the law as a way to earn his favor, as a checklist that he can measure and give us a grade on. It was to show us how holy he is and to highlight the gap between man and God morally and ethically. My son was reading his Bible and asked me this week this question. Dad, I'm in Leviticus. Tell me why there's all these rules It's a good question, isn't it? You know why we have all those rules? It's to show us how particular God is. Down to the color of the carpet in the tabernacle. Perfect, holy, regulated to the nth degree. But he regulates so much, there are so many laws. We step back and we say, "Ah, I can't keep all those even in memory, much less obey them all. That's the point. By this time in the history of Judaism, the Jewish legalists had twisted and even added to the law as an attainable standard by putting things in there that they could obey. How far you can walk, what you should do, what order you clip your fingernails in. I'm not making that up. What is he saying? It's impossible to gain salvation through effort. That's the point. No human achievement will make it happen. But look secondly at the possibility of salvation through faith. The impossibility of human achievement. The possibility of what God has done through faith. Verse 6. But, big contrast. Unlike human achievement, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Now, Now Paul contrasts this righteousness of the law, which it was impossible to maintain, with the righteousness based on faith, which he's been proclaiming in the entire letter to the Romans. And then this next little, little uh, set of verses is really interesting. Where does this come from? Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? Now, I read so many commentaries over this, this past week on this, and there is a raging debate on what these verses mean. 
What I find a little bit humorous is that a junior hire who can read can tell you what these verses mean because Paul tells you what they mean. There's a footnote. There's a parenthesis. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. That's the incarnation. Do not say in your own heart, I am going to organize the great gospel of God becoming a man. Because no one would organize that or even think that. Then he goes on. He's quoting Deuteronomy 9 and Deuteronomy 30 here. 9.24, Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 and 14. Who will descend into the abyss? What does that mean? He tells you. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. What is he talking about here? It's ability and ingenuity. Ability. Nobody can organize the gospel. We can't say, okay, you know, it's uh, 6 BC, it's time for this to happen, 30 AD, time for that. No one can say that. We're not in charge of that. It's totally dependent on God, His timing, His way. Even more than that, no one would dare invent that. Can you imagine getting a bunch of religious people in a boardroom with a whiteboard and said, we're going to invent a religion. And we're going to invent this religion that will, that will introduce people on how they can go to heaven. Actually, that's happened over the course of history. Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, even the aberrant versions of, of um, Judaism, Islam, Roman and Greek mythologies, Babylonian myths. That's people inventing this. Think of all of those crazy ways. We talked about 2,400 or 4,000 4, plus. Th think of all the ways people have invented religious ideas and then measure them against this. How about this? Perfect holy God who has the ultimate abhorrence and hatred of sinful man in his disobedience to the holiness of God. That God who's a trinity sent one of the persons of the trinity to become a man but not a sinful man one in the likeness of man who lived 30 plus years a perfect life men then killed and crucified him and then in order to authenticate that he was indeed sent by God he rose from the dead does that sound like any mythology or any religion ever invented by the mind of a man Paul is saying, this is by faith. Who invents this? This is fantastical. No one would invent this. He's saying, listen, listen. This fan, he kind of goes into this. You can almost hear Lord of the Rings music, this fantasy. Uh, who, who would create this odyssey of going into heaven and saying the Son of God should come and die for the sins of, of sinful man and, and then die and be resurrected from the grave? And who will go get Christ from heaven and bring him up from the abyss? The answer is no one. So... Verse 8 tells you how you can discover the best news since the Garden of Eden. But what does it say? This is so good. The word is near you. Now when you see the word, word in the New Testament, it has a range of meanings. It's, we typically say, well that means the word of God, the Bible, the pages of scripture. And it can mean that. But oftentimes this word, word, logos, actually refers to an idea. And the idea here is the gospel. Contextually, the word here, as we'll see in a moment, means the gospel of Jesus. 
the word, the gospel is near you in your mouth and in your heart. What does that mean? Hang on two verses and he'll tell you. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Paul has gone all the way back to, to since chapter 1. He's been preaching that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. The word or the gospel is nearby faith. That is good news that you are here this morning to hear what Paul's announcing and been preaching and now is going to summarize for us. So we're considering um, this idea of going to heaven and we've looked at the two options. Now he isolates the one right option and explains it. So number two, let's look at the only one Savior for securing salvation. We looked at the two options, now let's look at the right one, the one only one Savior for securing salvation. Now what follows is one of the simplest and clearest expressions of the gospel in the New Testament. It was probably a hymn. It was a, a formula that was, that was used to determine orthodoxy in the early church. Made up of three parts. Let's look at them individually. First of all, Jesus is confessed as Lord. The way you secure salvation is Jesus is confessed as Lord. Lord. Look at verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus, your translation may say as Lord. There, there's no, there's no uh, word there. It's probably what the, with, in Greek we call the supplied ame. It's the supplied is. Jesus is Lord. It's just if you confess with your mouth Jesus, comma, Lord. This is so important. I want to look at every word. If. It's a conditional clause. If you do this, then you go to heaven. If you don't, you go to hell. That's how important this is. If. It's one of the most powerful words in the Bible. When you see if, you need to straighten up and listen. It's a conditional clause. If. You. This is personal. He didn't say if a person. He actually looks us in the eye and says, If you will do this. Eternity hangs in the balance of what you personally do with what you're hearing this morning. The next phrase, confess with your mouth. A lot of confusion about this. This means you give your life to Jesus. You openly announce with your tongue your allegiance of your life. Does it mean that it's a formula that if you just say Jesus is Lord, doesn't matter how you live, doesn't matter what you believe that you're in? No, 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 not, as, not at all. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. In other words, you, Jesus isn't important. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Is he just talking about words? No. We could get an unbelieving, Satan-worshipping, demonic, immoral person to read this verse that says Jesus is Lord and they would say it with their lips. Is that what's going on here? They would confess it with their mouth. Is that what this means? Not at all. It's not just verbalizing it. To confess something in Paul's day meant that you're announcing that this was the, the area and the arena of your allegiance. You're saying, I belong to him. You're letting people know, I am now owned by Jesus. Next word is Jesus. Paul, it's interesting how he describes this person. Sometimes it's Jesus by himself. That's by that, that word by itself. That's here. Sometimes it's Jesus Christ. 
Sometimes it's Jesus Christ our Lord. Sometimes it's just Christ. And sometimes it's just Lord. All of those, if every jot and tittle of the, of the scripture means something, if, if Paul is inspired in everything he's saying in this letter, then we have to say, why is it said like this? He just says Jesus. When he just says Jesus, that's emphasizing his humanity and his identity as a man who walked on the earth. Jesus from Nazareth. He doesn't even give any descriptors except to say Jesus is Lord as a, as a, a connection point with deity as we'll see in a moment. He says Jesus. The next phrase is Lord. Not the Lord Jesus, just Jesus here. Remember, some people preach another Jesus, 2 Corinthians eleven four 4 says. They, they will invent a Jesus that does not coalesce with the truth of Scripture. He's a, a kinder, gentler, more teddy bearish Jesus. Just listen to the pundits on CNN, Fox News, the radio talk shows, who come, some of them uh, as... Uh, pastors, priests, preachers talking about Jesus and they say, oh, Jesus wouldn't say that or oh, Jesus wouldn't do that when those are things that Jesus did and that Jesus said. Then we come to this word, Lord. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. It's not so much his title as it is his identity. You say, what do you mean by that? Remember Philippians 2? Verse 5, it's talking about humility. Have this attitude, Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in yourself which also existed in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death as a criminal, even death on a cross and for this reason, because of Christ's identity and because of his work, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name. God gave Jesus a name which is above every name. So that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess something. Now hang on. We need to talk about this a second. What name is that? Is it the name Jesus? It's Greek for Jesus. Is it the name Jesus? J-E-S-U-S? Is, is that the name? Well, probably not. There's a lot of people named Jesus. It was a very common name during, during uh, Jesus' time. It actually could translate it be, as Joshua. Uh, I have many friends who uh, uh, are from Mexico or Spain or Honduras and, and their name is Jesus, Jesus. We're, English is one of the only cultures that don't name our kids after Jesus. It's kind of interesting, but I'm not sure we should because it's not culturally accepted. But in, in, in Spanish-speaking cultures, it is, right? Jesus. I mean, it's a great name. Is, it, is there anyone better to name your son after? Is it the name Jesus well, no, because of the, the lang of the, the uh, grammar here. There's something called a genitive in Greek, or it's a possessive in English. And it's of, it's possessive. So if you said at the name of Jesus, that's the same thing as saying as Jesus' name. Does that make sense? 
He possesses a name. Where did he get this name? God gave it to him. What is this name? He tells us in the verse that at the name of Jesus, Jesus' name that God gave him, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and every tongue will confess. There's our word from Romans, confess. That Jesus Christ, here's our name, is, what is it? Lord. That's his name. Isaiah 43, Isaiah 45 says, Only God is Lord. Only God is Lord. So if God bestows on him the name Lord, what is this saying about the identity of Christ? He's God. Now, don't get me wrong. You're going to leave saying, Our pastor, he doesn't think the name Jesus is anything special. I love that name. I love singing that name, saying that name. It's, it's the most precious name in my vocabulary. But Jesus of Nazareth has a name that's above every name. You know what that name is? He is Lord. He is God. He is creator himself. Now Romans. Every time we'll confess, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that's his deity. That's his identity. That's his Godness. It's also his masterness. He's over us. He's the ruler. My former pastor, my mentor, my friend John MacArthur, I was able to work with him for a quarter century. So thankful for him. And the majority of his ministry has been, ironically enough, defending that Jesus is Lord. It's odd. You don't make Jesus Lord. There's this, this brand of salvation, I think it's another gospel that says you accept Jesus as Savior and then later at some point in your time you make him Lord. Let, can we just look at that? <laughs> if Jesus is Master and God, do we make him that? Can anyone make him Lord? Here's a stat for you. In the book of Acts, which records the early church, Jesus is referred to as Lord 92 times and referred to as Savior twice I think it's just the opposite you don't accept him as savior and then make him lord later you submit to him as lord we submit to his lordship and he becomes our savior it's just the opposite this is what's being said here it doesn't say savior here you, you confess him as lord you tell the world you tell the, the, the people who know you the people you don't I am owned by Christ this might be a text you want to look at in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2, verse 3. Listen to how John phrases the same theology. By this we know that we've come to know him. Now, I don't know what he's going to say next, but it's important. Here's the test of saving faith. By this we know we've come to know him. What is he going to say next? If we keep his commandments. That's the same as saying submit to his lordship in our lives. If that's not clear enough, he goes on. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments, John says, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word. Remember John 8, 31? If you abide in my word, you're truly a disciple of mine. You'll know the truth. The truth will make you free. If, if you abide. Whoever keeps his word 
In him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we're in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Now, does that mean we become perfect? Live with me for an hour. Hope not. It does mean that we are in progress of becoming like our, our Lord. We obey him. There aren't categories of life over which Jesus is not Lord in the one who confesses him as Lord. Well, he's Lord of my life on Sunday, but not uh, with that friendship or with, with that relationship or with my girlfriend or with my boyfriend or when I eat or when I go to work or with my family. No, no. He is Lord. That's who he is. That's his name God gave him. And those who are true believers submit to him as such. Look at the second descriptor. Jesus is believed to be alive. He's believed to be alive. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. This means from the innermost being of sincerity. That's from the heart. This is when no one else is around, you still believe this. This is when people who are antagonistic are around you, you still hold to this. You believe in your heart. It's absolutely sincere. What? What do you believe? That Jesus Christ was dead. And he was raised from the grave. In Acts chapter 2, the first Christian sermon ever preached, Peter says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which, you, which he performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Acts 2.23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. You killed the Savior. You killed the Lord. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since since it was impossible for him to be dead, to be held in its power. The cross is implied because Jesus has to be dead to become resurrected. But notice here that the the true test for orthodoxy is the resurrection. We understand that. Paul told the Corinthians, if we don't believe in the resurrection, we are of all men to be pitied. And if we don't have the resurrection in our theology, then we are not savable. Our faith is in vain. We talked about this over and over, but probably the most important question anyone can ever answer is this. Where are the bones of Jesus? Where are those bones? I just saw on the Discovery Channel again a few weeks ago the recycling of that documentary where they had the, they found the bones of Jesus in this little ossuary, this bone box. If that's true, then we deny everything we've ever said, everything we've ever believed, everything I've ever preached is false if that's true. Those are not the bones of Jesus. I know. I know where the bones are. Don't you? They are in the body, the real physical body of the resurrected Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for the saints. Right now, he is somewhere. Really, honestly, 
materially. I don't know if you go to Jupiter, take three light years, I don't know where it is, but he is somewhere. He didn't just dissolve. He's alive. Listen to how Colin Cruz summarizes this. Believe with the heart without confession of the mouth is not, believing with, with the heart without confession of the mouth is not true faith. Confession with the mouth without belief in the heart would be hypocrisy. That's good. Look at the last phrase, then you'll be saved. Saved from what? Sin, Satan, self, hell, God in judgment. Which leads us to this third little descriptor. Jesus is received by faith. He's received by faith. Verse 10. For with the heart, that sincere part of you, a person believes. They exercise faith. What's the result of that? You are made righteous. You are seen. This is the doctrine of imputation again. He doesn't make you live perfectly or righteous. That's why we are sanctified through life. But he sees us through the righteousness of his son. He imputes Jesus' righteousness to our account and takes our sin and puts it on the cross with Christ. It's incredible. I can't say it enough and still be even more amazed. I'm just, it's amazing. It results in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. That means you you have a public profession. You know, sometimes we talk about, well, religion is a personal matter. No, it's not. Not if you're a child and a son or a daughter of the king. It's not private. Christianity is not a matter of your own private organization of thoughts. Christianity means we confess with our mouth and everyone knows. We are announcers and proclaimers and evangelists. Verse 10 is a summary statement, summary statement of, the, of the great news that you can have salvation by believing and confessing. It's the promise of salvation through belief, through faith. Romans 3, 28. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. I love verse 11. For the scripture says, I love it when Paul says that. The scripture says, he was an expositor. The scripture says, looking back at Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 49, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame or disappointed. You may go through life and, and receive criticism and rebuke and even persecution because of your faith in Christ, but you will not be ashamed in the end. You won't be put to shame. You won't be disappointed. He's also going back to uh, uh, Isaiah 28, 16 and Isaiah 49, 23 to show that sola fide, the doctrine of grace alone and faith alone through Christ alone is not a New Testament idea. It's rooted in the Old Testament. And don't miss this. Do not miss the word in verse 11. Whoever. Jew or Gentile. To anyone who will believe, that's why verse 12 comes right afterward, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Now he's defining the whoever. For the same is Lord of all. Abounding in riches for all who call on him. There's only one way to go to heaven. And it's through Christ. And praise God because every other way is dependent on our trying better and being better and doing more and 
working harder and that's nothing could be more doomed to emotional disaster than trying to work your way to heaven. But those who believe by faith are constantly amazed. Really? He did it for me. I, I mean, I don't, do, I don't do anything. And we respond, but that's not to earn. That's in response, right? And then it ends. Verse 13. Whoever, I love this. Whoever, tall, short, black, white, North America, South America, Jew, Gentile, anyone, whoever will call on the name, what name is that? Of the Lord will be saved. Wow, what an invitation. What an invitation. He's quoting Joel 2, verse 32. It's a begging plea that I would love to echo with you today. Who will call on the Lord? Let me remind you though, what Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. He says, you might not have forever to do this. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. You know what that implies? There's a time when he won't be found. There's a time when he will close a person up, Romans 1 says, in the hardness of their heart. They'll turn us over. We will be turned over, rather, to the, the objects of our own desire. If you're convicted about this, if you're thinking about this, if you're curious about this, now, today, is that day of salvation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon the Lord while he is near. Romans just told us, the word of the Lord, the gospel is near if you hear it. Is Jesus your Lord? Do you believe that he's alive? And he was dead. Salvation is so simple. But it costs you everything. Absolutely free. And costs everything. How does that work? Jesus himself said, if any man wishes to follow after me, let him, what's he say? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. That's lordship. That's good news. I just told you the most important thing in your whole life through Paul. What you do with this text, what you do with what Paul just said in this book, what you do with this determines your entire eternity. What, what have you done? What will you do with What will you do with the gospel? I think that we have people, even in our own church, who like the idea of Jesus being their savior, but never have truly submitted to his lordship and said your will not mine your way not mine your word not my ideas can I just beg you today can I beg you can I beg you to stop stiff arming his lordship and bow the knee now before you have to bow it in eternity in judgment receive salvation now because of his lordship or be eternally punished because of it in hell forever at the judgment. Jonathan Edwards says, today is the day the salvation's doors have been thrown open to you and God calls you run in the door. Please. Lunch is not that important. Your meeting is not that important. Your eternity is. Don't leave without knowing this. Please. 
eternity's in the balance. And Lord, we are humbled again by the simplicity of your gospel. Oh, Father, please, by your wooing power of your spirit, draw people to believe and to submit to Jesus because he's kind. His burden isn't heavy. It's easy. His yoke is easy and he's, he's a gentle and loving Savior. Provide divine enablement to measure this life against eternity and to see the value of Jesus in the gospel. Because of him we pray, amen.